0: We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two. All engines running.
1: Ten questions with Adam Sward. Big names, great minds.
0: Make yourself a cup of tea. Lift off. We have lift off. Welcome to another Ten Questions. Today, I'm interviewing a guy whose photo I had up on my wall when I was a teenager. But more about that in a second. I just want to bring to your attention that we're doing a special one-off performance of Agony live in Melbourne at the Yarraville Club on December twelfth. It stars Lawrence Mooney, Silly Piccola, Sam Pang, and Michelle Laurie. And tickets are on sale at YarravilleLuffs.com. That's YarravilleLuffs.com. Get along if you can. Don't want to put too much pressure on this, but... It might be the start of something. But back to our guest. Everybody knows Steve Weizard and Australian comedy owes him so much. There's the 11th Hour, Fast Forward, Tonight Live, all of which he wrote, produced, and starred in. He was also EP of Big Girls Blouse, Jim Owen, and The Eric Banner Show. I was about 17, and I didn't know what to do with the rest of my life, when I read an article on Steve Weizard in Time magazine. I hadn't seen Tonight Live, but the article resonated with me, so I stuck the article plus the cover photo of Steve on the wall right next to the poster of tennis player Gabriella Sabatini. After that, I became a massive Visard fan, really missing an episode of Tonight Live and never missing Fast Forward. Then, several years later, I was lucky enough to work with Steve on The Wedge and then on two seasons of the Agony series. Sometimes meeting your heroes works out. Right now, Steve's written a play called Last Man Standing, which is at the Melbourne Theatre Company. And as always, I started by asking him when he was most happy.
1: Maybe I'm just good at eliminating the negative bits, but it seems to me my life's been full of happiness. Um, When I was a little kid, my memories of growing up, we moved a fair bit, and I have memories of always being on a scooter and scootering around with my brother, a red scooter, and my brother had a green scooter, and we'd scooter everywhere. And the sun was always sunny. I mean, what age would we have been? Uh, uh, I was 23, and he was 21. So <laughs> no, this is, <laughs> oh, we still scooter everywhere. We're idiots. Now, um, so I reckon I would have been, I would have been about seven or eight. And Andy would have been six; he's two years younger than me, and we were just. Life was like one endless summer. So I have endless, endless joy thinking about that. I suppose I've got five kids. The birth of each of my five kids was fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, you know, I just got on the phone. I mean, literally sitting there witnessing the birth of new life was fantastic, and then getting on the blow it to my mum and my dad and all my friends and my family and just saying, oh, we've just got this you know, little kid, and being surrounded by family at that time was was just amazing. Um, Summer I remember when I was about 14, I remember summer holidays where I, it was the most beautiful summer holidays we were at Point Lonsdale. And I remember at that very time, I was reading Lord of the Rings. And it was just, I was immersed in this magical world for the first time. Mm. I mean, now it's, we've all seen the films and it's so commonplace. But for a 14-year-old boy, I remember just reading this and, you know, mucking around in the waves by day and just, you know, body surfing for hours on end, you know, absolutely heedless of any skin cancer or anything. We just got burnt at the berry in those days. (laughs) And we'd lie on the beach, just get covered in sand, dry off, and then we'd go back in and body surf. And then uh, for evenings and night, I'd read this Lord of the Rings and I, now that I think about it, that was just this most magical summer of fantasy and mm. real fantasy as well. Perfect. And what else? Oh, falling in love with my wife for the first. I mean, I remember falling in love with Sarah. Yeah. The first time we met at a dinner party. And we, we were both there to be set up with these different people. And we were accidentally set ne- sat next to each other. And the other people didn't get a look in. And we just talked the whole night. And we laughed and laughed. And I thought she was beautiful and funny and um, that was kind of love at first sight. And then, yeah. she, and then, I, and then I ended up, to, contrary to what the plan was, I took her back to her place and I tried to crack onto her and she said, I don't, I don't sleep with someone on the first day. And then and I said, what happens if I, came, I dropped you off and came back in 20 minutes? She said, oh, that, could be, she said that could be different. <laughs> <laughs> so I probably should I probably shouldn't have divulged that But That's brilliant, uh, that mate. Was... What a
0: what a great what a great line. It it reminds me of that Keith Miller story where Bradman tells everyone to be in bed by during the Ashes two hundred forty eight, and forty eight and Bradman says everyone in bed at midnight and at ten past twelve Keith knocks on the Don's door and said, Don I did what you said I was in bed at midnight and now I'm fucking going out. <laughs>
1: How good was Keith Miller? Yeah. What a l le- I'm surprised someone hasn't done a thing on him. Yeah. Did Keith Miller did Keith Miller get it on with Princess Margaret? That was the story, yeah. wasn't it? That yeah, he cracked to Princess story. Margaret. And I remember there was a time, it must have been late in his career, when he would be brought into the commentary box on, on A B C radio. Yeah. And they'd bring the great Keith Miller in and you'd listen to the radio and I would love listening to cricket on the radio when I was growing up. And you could always tell when Keith Miller came into the commentary box because he had, it was, A, the most perceptive commentary, Mm. but it was the position to the MCG that he described. He'd never say, it's hit through cover or it's hit to square leg or point. He'd say, it's hit toward the sportsman's bar. Uh, (laughs) Everything was, every position on the MCG was described in terms of where you could get a beer. It was the most extraordinary That's description of the MCG I've ever heard. He was fantastic.
0: The second question, Steve, who would you like to apologise to and why?
1: Well, you know, this is an interesting question for me because I've lived a life full of apology. So um, when you ask the question, you mean someone who I haven't actually currently apologised to because I reckon I've apologised to everyone. <laughs> I've spent my life apologising to my mum, my dad, my wife, my kids, my colleagues. I've apologised. I reckon I've apologised to more people than is most people collectively, than a room full... I've apologised to newspapers, to to viewers of TV shows, to lovers of comedy. You'd be hard-pressed to think of someone who should be apologised to that I actually already haven't apologised to. So I'm trying to think who's left. I, I guess um, my... It, it, uh, you know what? My younger self, when you know what it's like when you're growing up. Um, we, when I was young, um, I was, I was. You know, you're so full of hubris, and the only person you think about is yourself. So when I was young, uh, you know, you, you'd get a job and you'd not turn up or something, or uh, you know, mm. you, and you'd let someone down. I remember I was a tutor at St Mary's College, and the nuns who ran the. This is at uni, so I've been put. In a college, and given a position of responsibility, but I'm about 23, and the only thing that I'm thinking about are women mucking around, drinking, women, <laughs> uh, you know. And, and the great thing about this college was that me and my curls were the first intake of blokes into this college. Oh this is before God. we got, got appointed tutors. So it was an all-female college at Melbourne University, and we we were invited oh. in. So it's the first time they go and co-ed. So they took four blokes in out of like about 200 girls and four blokes. So we had to go and get Sister Elizabeth, who, and we had to look as though we, we had to, I had gotten a haircut for the occasion and I looked, I was 23 and Curls and I colluded and we both dressed in these things. We looked like we were Jesuits. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah. so we turned up at the interview, and Sister Elizabeth let us in. And the beauty of this college every single night was at nine o'clock they had this old caretaker. He looked like a caretaker out of um, Harry Potter.
0: Yeah,
1: and um, he'd locked the door at nine o'clock every night to stop all the boys coming in, <laughs> except we were the boys. There were four of us locked in this college with all the. It was it was just it, it was amazing. Um, it was like. It was like being let loose in it. It was just unbelievable. So I'd apologise. I would apologise to Sister Elizabeth. I'd <laughs> apologise to half the Catholic population. <laughs> I'd apologise. And the nuns were so nice to us. I mean, we let them down just so badly. I remember me and my mate Tony Rickards and Curls, you know, we were supposed to be tutoring or something and we just went away we drove to Sydney. We went, actually went up Sydney Road to get a hamburger, as you do at uni. <laughs> it was 11.30 at night, and, and Rog had an old Peugeot. And we drove up to get a hamburger at, at this place uh, in Sydney Road. And we got the hamburger. We said, oh, I wonder if we should drive a bit further. And we drove through the night to Sydney. We just drove to Sydney for no reason. Arrived in Sydney. We had a mate who was at NIDA, stayed at his place for four days, came back. Uh, and we went to King's Cross and we saw all these strip clubs and it was like you know all, all this whole world <laughs> opening up. And then we came back and the nuns, we'd missed all these chips and done all our duty and stuff like that. And we and I rang before we arrived back and told Sister Elizabeth a complete fabrication that we'd been fishing. Yeah. And um, she said, "Well, could you bring us back a fish?" So we started, <laughs> I, I only remembered that when we were coming back down to Sydney Road and we stopped at this fish and chip shop just you know minutes away from the college and you had a, a fish and chip shops have all those fish on ice on yeah, the, yeah. in the front window yeah we bought we, we we just bought an esky and filled it up with whatever they had and we took it and the cook cooked it and the nuns made this special dinner with the fish that we'd allegedly cooked and i thought we'd got away with this thing saying we'd been fishing and, and elizabeth after she'd eaten it and been very nice and said it's great to have you back they said you must have been fishing in some very unusual places because you've managed to get freshwater fish, deep-sea fish, estuary fish. <laughs> <laughs> they, they knew exactly what they were up to. Well, Sister Elizabeth, was it? Sister Elizabeth. I'd, oh. I'd apologise to Sister Elizabeth oh. for uh, having, you know, really not done what we was supposed to do. I, I,
0: I reckon she would have known what she was getting herself into. Just yeah, by, by the you side know, of but, your. Rickards, was Ricards one of the.
1: Uh, the... No, well, no, but he was a constant visitor. I yeah, mean, right. why wouldn't he be? <laughs> you know, he was, he was always in there. It was just, all, you know, and you know, my friend Paul Grabowski was in there. <laughs> we, we, the, it was just fantastic. It was, I mean, they were golden days. Question three What is your greatest regret? I'm not a great regretter. I, I don't spend my life looking backwards because. I early on formed a view that there's no point um, dwelling on things that you can't change, and the only thing you can change is what's about to happen. So mm. uh, I'm not I'm not one of the great regretters in life. I mean, I think I should I, I like to learn for the future, mm. but I I don't think there's much point regretting the past. But if I did, I, I guess uh, let me think. When when I was at uh, at school, there was a teacher who who was, um, his name was Mr. Keats. And he was he was almost like one of those teachers you see in those films where he's teased and all the boys tease and mock him. Yeah. And he was actually an incredibly good teacher. And I remember at one stage, all the boys were, I went to an old boys school and, and I was a late developer. So I was just kind of, you know, I wasn't aggressive. I just sort of went around my business. And I remember at one stage, and he was an English teacher, he was inspirational in a way, and he was reading to us this quite beautiful book and all the other boys um, started throwing uh, rolled up bits of paper at him and stuff, and it was the saddest thing. The poor man, he must have been stressed, but he started crying and I remember thinking to myself, I did nothing. I actually did nothing um, to stop it and I did nothing and I just stood by and watched. And it always was with me, that, that horrible thing about watching a mob do something and being complicit, not actually, you know, even though I didn't throw anything, I, I actually did nothing to, <clears throat> to stop it either. And I just felt so regretful and, and I never fully understood mm. the pain that that man must have been feeling or, yeah, yeah. you know, what, what he was on about. And yet even now, that and now as an older man and having seen so much more of life and, and whatever, um, uh, you know, I, I still feel this pain and this angst for this poor man who turned up and was trying to teach this group of hoodlums oh, yeah. the beauty of the English language. And <laughs> And so, yeah... I guess, I guess that would be my greatest regret. It's a pathetic little thing, but it's something that's stuck with me my whole life.
0: When I ask that question, a lot of people do talk about you know, bullying that went on in school, whether they were the bully or they were standing, you know, standing by watching someone get bullied or something like that. I, I think it's quite potent.
1: Of all the things in life, you see it in the workplace, you hear about it in military situations, you know, or, or just in plain old life, straight in front of you every day. When you see someone who's picked on or who's ridiculed, who's mocked unfairly, it's something that absolutely riles me. I mean, it's, mm. it's, of all the things in life, it's the thing that most, <clears throat> the most riles me.
0: Yeah, yeah, me too. A um, question for Steve. What would you still need to do to feel you've lived a satisfactory life?
1: Yeah, the answer is probably nothing, actually. I'm really comfortable with where I'm at at the moment. Mm. I, I If... It'd be more of the same. It'd just be yeah, yeah. variations of more of the same. I mean, I the the best thing in life for me is waking up on a beautiful day. Um, enjoy, I love the company of other people, not not just mass numbers. A small having a great lunch, doing something like that, immersing myself in a great book, watching a great film or a movie, seeing a great piece of theatre. Living just living a day for me is is what I enjoy doing. And, I, and I've done that and I continue to enjoy doing it. I mean, if I think it's some great things that I'd like to do, I mean, I'd like to, I mean, I, 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 you know, I'm shocking. I imagine myself doing all of these things, but when it gets down to it, I kind of enjoy what I'm doing. I, I imagine, for example, that I wanted to go on this trek through the Austrian Alps once. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, someone gave me one of those books, like a thousand and one great walks in yeah. the world. So I thought, oh, you know what? I'm going to do these. I'm going to go you know it was like a thousand. I mean I couldn't do one, so I had have I told you about how me and Tony Rickards did this? yeah, you went you went to somewhere in we, Europe or, we uh, went to yeah, so we yeah. actually did this. we booked a trip. I'm Tony and me, who are best mates, yeah, we're each other's sons' godparents. so we got the two boys who were at that time about fourteen and thirteen, and we took the two boys and we went to Europe, Tony and me to do this walk through Germany and Italy and Tony loves a drink. So we arrived at the airport with the boys and no, we hadn't even got... We were driving to where we were supposed to start the walk and we passed an inn. Yeah. and it was a really quite attractive looking inn, and Tony said, well, why don't we stop and have a bit of a drink before we do the walking part? So we went there. Well, then we wrote that day off and the boys were having quite a nice time. So then we thought, well, we'll stay in this little place... <laughs> So then we drove somewhere the next day and we thought, shit, this is a nice little village. Why don't we just stay here for a day? What actually was supposed to be one of the commencement of my 1001 walks <laughs> of the world turned into a pub crawl through the Austrian Alps. <laughs> we, we heard there was this great chalet that we could go to and stay for the night and Tony got the uh, Tony got the instructions in German from the innkeeper where we were at because we were ridden in the middle of Bavaria and they, they didn't really speak good English and uh, we were driving this tiny little car. So Tony was the navigator, and I was following his instructions. He had a map with a, 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 a biro line drawn on it, this bloke had drawn. So we drove, and we're going up a track, and then we started... The track. The road started to get more and thinner, and then we, we're, we're really high up on the side of a mountain, and then the road petered out, and we're stuck on an angle, an unbelievably steep angle, halfway up an, al- an Alp. And we couldn't go any further. And I said, mate, we're we're buggered. And we stopped. And about 20 minutes later, these hikers came down the track and started pointing at our car. Tony had inadvertently steered us up a walking track. (laughs) We'd taken a car up a walking track (laughs) and we were stuck. And we had to wait for all of these hikers to come to help us turn the car around. It was horrific. Well, you lifted, they was, lifted the car and turned it they around. They helped us sort of drag the car around. It was horrible. The whole... I, I swear to God, I thought the car... We were going to lose the car. The boys were really upset. That was one of that was one of the better moments of our supposed walking trip. We, we, we didn't walk anywhere. We walked nowhere. <laughs>
0: Uh, just to listen to Tony Rickards is uh, one of Australia's best character actors and he's been on everything over
1: the years oh he has and and a comedian as well and a great writer Mm. and a great mate of mine as well and a very funny guy just great company
0: very funny man and uh, yeah and and uh, got a bit of notoriety in the 80s for, for his various romances.
1: Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Most, well, oh uh, yeah. I mean, one of them, of course, was Greta Scarchi. Y- yeah. <laughs> so he, he went out with, Tony went out with Greta Scacchi for uh, four or five years. Unbelievable. And in fact, that's when he was living in Carlton. And I used to stay with him at his place in Carlton in those days. And and Greta at that time, and still is, was one of the most beautiful women in the world. Yeah. I mean, what she was doing with Tony is just beyond belief. <laughs> but, um, but I, I remember, I'd, st- I'd be staying there, because you know how you sort of stay, you bought off people at yeah. their houses at that age. And um, and Greta would come down, she had habit of coming down nude to make herself a cup of tea or coffee or something. I'd get up at about 4am <laughs> on the off chance You've never seen so many blokes wandering around a kitchen, like ambling around a kitchen just on the off chance that she might materialise. It was pathetic. And once the word got out, Roscoe would come over. There was dozens of blokes all coming over, just pottering around his kitchen for no apparent reason. And finally, Tony twigged. It was... (laughs) He he would hear all those alarms going off at 4 a.m. Uh, got <laughs> to I've got to get I've got to go. I've got a meeting at Tiny's kitchen. <laughs> um question
0: 5, Steve. Who is the person who most influenced you and how?
1: Uh look, you know, the the clear answer is probably dad. Um he he had an extraordinary life and he was an interesting man. And he was a strong personality and a good man, and you know he raised us four kids, and so I'd say I was massively influenced by my dad. He'd lived an interesting life. He, his father, I and mean, then uh, my grandfather, had come out as one of thirteen Irishmen, and they they were very they they were educated Irishmen who'd been to Trinity College yeah. in Dublin, and uh, they talked like that, and uh, they were fantastically interesting guys. And dad had grown up, but dad was. Uh, my grandfather got married late, so, you know, he, he was an older father, my grandfather to my father, and uh, he was very strict, like really strict. And, uh, and so Dad had started at university, just missed the war. Um, and uh, But then they set up this thing called the Pacific Island Administration School, and it was to administer all of the Pacific Islands, that Australia had been given as territories after the war and they needed to equip them with people and they wanted these young patrol officers to administer them. So they were effectively magistrates, uh, explorers, uh, anthropologists, all in one. So as a 23-year-old, he went to this place called Kerama in New Guinea. It's called the Gulf region. Yeah. And it went right up through the Fly River, the Sepik River, all the way up into the highlands. And they were charged with exploring it. It was uncharted. It was off the map. There was no maps of it. And during his lifetime up there, he m- encountered people who'd never seen white people before. I mean, he had arrow marks in his left from where he was fired upon oh by these God. people. Never seen them. They are pygmies called the cooker Cookers. I've got photos that Dad took with his camera. And they'd go on these huge expeditions. It was like something out of Ryder Haggett, you know, King yeah. Solomon's mind. They'd go on these expeditions that went 200 days into unexplored territory. And every day they'd hack through the jungle and they'd stop, set up camp, and they had their native porters and just three white guys and like, you know, 40 native porters going through. And they'd, admit, they'd arrest and they'd explain how justice worked and uh, they'd tell people how to set up their villages. And it was, it literally was sort of colonialism meeting. Uh, uh, you know, uh, native culture. That's amazing. And, yeah, it was amazing. And uh, Dad's dad's diaries and records of it are extraordinary. His photo albums of it are extraordinary. And you look at the photos and, and just think he was 23, 24, 25 when he did that. The same age as my boys are. And I think what I was doing at that age I remember, mean, well, I was at St Mary's yeah. College. Yeah, that's right. I was, I was about lying. That. I was lying to Sister Elizabeth. <laughs> and he was in the jungle administering justice. That, and, you know, he, yeah. some of the stuff that he brought back, um, artefacts he brought back and uh, uh, bows and arrows and wood. You probably wouldn't get them for customs now. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, as I, as I sit here talking to you in the corner of the room here, there's a whole cluster of things. But they were actually exhibits in murder trials where they had payback killings. So one village would mm. raid the next village and uh, they'd kill people. And they were just... The kooka cooker cookers were just coming out of cannibalism. Yeah. Um, you know, when a, when a, uh, when, uh, a, a native woman's... A kooka cooker cooker's husband would die, she would wear his intestines, his dried intestines around uh, her neck for a year. My God. Uh, They'd smoke the bodies in a tree that's you know they can bury them they smoke them in a tree this is very primitive culture and Mm. he's got photos of all of these things i mean it literally was first encounter and uh and i and i often would think as a young boy and then as a young man my brother would as well um how would we have gone in that environment what must it have been like exploring and the responsibility and the and the and, and the fun and the challenge of yeah. getting it daily and living in that environment. And the blokes that he was working with were... He was very young. They were all former um, officers, you know, from the war who, who, in a way, still couldn't settle down. They'd been traumatised by the war or, or didn't want to come back into normal society. So these were highly experienced men in their own right who'd led men in combat, who'd seen death, but who now wanted, in a way, to put themselves outside of society. So that was the life that they chose. Wow.
0: What an interesting... thing! And were those those diaries ever published or...? or... No, we've still... In fact, as I,
1: as I say, I was sitting here looking at a whole pile of them in the corner um, of what his records were, and they're a mixture between what he was feeling as a young man... Yeah. Um, ..and in his notes about... Little anthropo- anthropological notes of, you know, and jotting down words in his, and, and also... Trying to record their creation myths about how these people thought they were created from the god in the sky, they're really interesting um, diaries. They're fantastic. I was really influenced, obviously, by my dad and and what he'd done, and um, and he was a, he was a good man. He was a strong. He was a stri- He in turn was a strict father for us, for Andy and me and Jenny and Fiona, um, and he. He came down and ran businesses. You know, he was trained in a way to run businesses. Mm. He's a manager, but, um, and he, he worked in Flinders Lane uh, with running a large national business uh, for years. Um, and, uh, but, but eventually he, he he wanted to move to the bush. So we bought land out of Warrandite. That's where we really grew up in Warrandite, um, next to a national park with our own acreage as well. And it was like growing up. Um, You know, we had the river and and, and native animals and everything next to us. So it was our own little version of exploring.
0: What a fascinating life and what a fascinating kind of, you know, introduction to adulthood being
1: in that situation for him. Yeah, I mean, I guess you ask who's influenced you. at the risk of boring his siblings, I mean, another one who... who, um, Influenced me, and I probably never thought about it till now. Was we had a te- we had a te- we had two teachers at school. One I talked about, one who sort of I felt was picked on, but what we had two great teachers. One was called Mr. Moore, and when I was in grade six, he would climb through the window of you know, he had form teachers, they take every subject in those yeah. days. um He'd climb through the window, occasionally dressed as a Roman centurion, and then he he would lead the class. Then the whole class would be about the whole day would be about what it was like in ancient Rome. Wow! And once a week, every every Monday, he would come in, and he would read us. I mean, I mentioned uh, King Solomon's Mines. That's what he read to us over a whole year. This is a teacher. You wouldn't do this now. Yeah. He read us chapter by chapter. He read us. King Solomon's Minds. And he started at the first chapter, Rudyard Kipling, and he read all of the way through to the end over the course of the year. And it was the most extraordinary um, year. He read the parts in, you know, the different voices. And he, he, I, I still remember that um, uh, so vividly. And he had a whole That's class. Great. I mean, the class side would have been 35 boys, all, you know, what would it be, being 12, 11? And we were mesmerised. Mm. Who would have thought that someone just reading a story to a group of boys could mesmerise us? And we he had us spellbound for a year. And that, that uh, you know, I've never really talked about that, but that, uh, to me, not with, that just wasn't great teaching. That was inspirational storytelling yeah. about how, what the power of a story is. And I had another teacher, what was he, Warwick Taylor, his name was. He was like... Uh, Something out of Carnaby Street, and he he had long blonde hair. This is at an age when everyone had short hair. Yeah, it he, he was like he'd step out of Carnaby Street, and he was you know he would he was very aesthetic. Uh, if we'd known better, we'd probably he'd probably had preferences now that would be clear. But yeah, yeah, we were you know. But he would read to us Dylan Thomas. Um, and again, he taught us English, but nothing on the syllabus. He'd read us under Milkwood and, and he, oh, and he wow. taught us and he read us uh, and, he, and he explained Descartes to us about, wow. I think, therefore I am. But, there was, you know, we weren't, philosophy wasn't on the syllabus, but he talked to us about Descartes and how Descartes fell asleep by a fire once and he couldn't tell when he woke up. And during when he was asleep dreaming, Descartes had dreamt that he was by the fire. And it posed the question: How do we know whether life is a dream and what's reality? And and he took us through Descartes and philosophy in a very elemental way, and and that was so powerful in its own right. So those those teachers, I think, who have custody of young minds, and who instead of just dealing with what's required, inject something further, and that's something further being passion the passion to learn and the passion to teach and the passion to inquire and the passion to ask why, I think that is the greatest gift you can give to people.
0: Question six, when was the last time you cried and why?
1: Well, see, you're asking the wrong person, mate, because I am a crier. (laughs) I cry at the drop of a hat. I cry, I mean, okay, to be specific, Sarah and I went to see, what was the film called? This is okay. This is embarrassing now. We went to Gold Class on the weekend because Sarah likes rom coms. Yeah. So we and we loved Gold Class because we just put our feet up one ordered the hot dogs. Oh yeah. So it's fantastic. I remember the first time I went to Gold Class and I put the seat back. I actually reached across to do up my seatbelt like I was on a plane. It was I just couldn't believe how good is this. So uh, anyhow, we went to Gold Class last weekend to see this film burnt. Right. Um, what's he, you know, I can't remember his name. Um, anyhow, it's a story of a chef. Oh, uh, yeah, um, chef. Bradley, Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper. And what's her name? Sienna Miller? Is that yeah, name? Yeah, yeah, Sienna Miller. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So, you know, romantic comedy. Mate, I'm a sucker. I'm crying every time there's anything resembling a setback. Uh, you know, a stumbling, a get-together, anything. I, I, I tear up. I'm shocking. Yeah, My, but... I, I, I will up at anything. I, we were watching a Shirley Temple movie the other night at some ungodly hour on the telly. A Shirley It's black and white. It's made in about 1935. B- Bill Blow, Jangles Robinson's tap-dancing in it. I'm crying. She's singing I'm on the Good chip Lolly. I'm pathetic. I'll cry at anything. So... Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that's the answer. Uh, about five days ago. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, so do I. I I don't know if you're aware of that series, Friday Night Lights. Uh, it's yeah. a, About a high school football team. I'm, I'm crying all the way through that. It's. Uh,
1: How could you not? Yeah. But, I <laughs> you know, I think there's. But I think, in a way, that's good because you you're in the business of telling stories. Mm. mm. And it shows you that you're attuned to listening to you know, the emotional meanderings of story probably too emotionally attuned I would have said <laughs> <laughs> but at least, you know that's that's probably a better sort of on the calibration scale to be sort of erring on that side the, the you know, emotionally you know, uh, absolutely yeah, <laughs> devoid of anything Question
0: seven, what's your current state of mind? Well
1: you, you well, I mean, if you were to ask others, I'd probably say as unstable as I've ever been. But in terms of how I see myself, I'd say entirely positive. I'm loving life. I mean, I, I love waking up every day. I love the prospect of, you know, the sun coming out, of of catching up with friends, of planning. I'm a great planner. I, I'm always looking forward to the next thing or, you know, to a lunch that we're having or, to you know, something we do. And I've always got projects on the go. And yep. they're pathetic. Like our, well, here's one. I'm looking out the. I'm looking straight out at some trees that have been denuded by possums. <laughs> so I've spent the last three months working out because I don't like to kill possums, and yeah. I know people do, and, re- and I can't, and I don't want to relocate them. So I've, I'm completely spent my time thinking how can I possum-proof those trees. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. I have. I've got bits of plastic over them. I bought stuff from Bunnings, which gives me a trip to Bunnings, and then I go and buy other stuff and I start other stupid projects. I've always got some pathetically bizarre project on the go. Mm. Um, but at the moment it's possum proofing the um, possum proofing the the backyard. Uh, and writing. I always love planning and you know writing a new project or imagining a new project. Mm. or thinking about a trip that we might go somewhere, or catching up with people, or some, you know, something like that. So yeah. my state of mind's entirely positive and, and driven by the prospect of another stupid encounter. Question eight, what do you consider your greatest achievement? Oh, I'd say my, my, my five kids and my, my relationship. Mm. With, them, with my with my family and my wife, my family and my kids. I'd say that beyond anything. that That is by far what I enjoy doing in life. Uh, it's sort of the centre of my life. I mean, you know, maybe stupidly so. But uh, I, I love catching up with them and I love hearing what they're doing. Um, I've loved it since they were born. Um, I've loved, you know, uh, helping them do things and I love doing things with them. Yeah. I mean, occasionally we'll just, you know, say who wants to go somewhere and we'll just go and have a... I mean, one of my kids is in the middle of exams at the moment, so I just picked her up from uni the other day and, and uh, yesterday and we went up to Tiamo's, which is where I used to have um, spaghetti and oh, coffee. Yeah. It's exactly the same I place. And, and the son uh, is the son who worked there, remembers me from when I used to come in, and he's the son of the owner that I... his name was, and it's the son who's still oh. there. And uh, now he's serving my daughter, who's doing exactly the same stuff as I was, and and you know we had. To, I don't think anything's changed. The food's the same. The cooks the yeah. same. And uniquely, they've got the same. They've got the old posters on the wall. It's layered in history. Yes. So they've got posters from concerts and bands and ballrooms and shows. Places like the Last Laugh that are long shut down are still on the wall, like an historical document, like you know, it's laid. It's almost like Pompeii. Yeah. It's like going on a living a culinary dig yeah. every time you go into uh, into into that place. So that to me doing things like that, which aren't big, they're just life mm. um, to me is so rich. Um you know, not that long ago I said, Who wants to go on a trip? and and we went we took three kids who were available. I said, Let's just go somewhere. We went to the airport and we just took what we had in our bags and we went down to Tassie for three days and uh and we drove it we got the cheapest fare we could. Yeah. We there's a forty minute flight. We rented the cheapest car we could at the other end and we drove into um into the nearest town and uh had ourselves a great. <laughs> This is the most embarrassing thing that's happened in a restaurant, Adam. I <laughs> we turned up at this restaurant in at Launceston, I think it was, and uh, it was the upmarket restaurant in Launceston. But the three kids and me were just got off the of plane. We haven't planned; but arrived, and everyone else in the restaurant are all sort of couples on dates and stuff. they have given us a good table because there's four of us, yes. And those tables have got candles on, and it's really atmospheric. And they've got the, <laughs> they've got those. Everything's handcrafted in this restaurant, and they've got those uh, menus on wooden boards between two wooden boards. You turn over. Yes. So I'm holding, reading the menu, (laughs) and um, I'm sort of—it's kind of dark, so I'm kind of getting close to the candle. And suddenly, I'm smelling this horrible burning smell, (laughs) and I've managed. And suddenly. I put the. Bo- I did. I didn't realise I was doing it. The board has been under the flame, <laughs> and then the whole menu board catches fire. We've been in this really elegant restaurant for three minutes. <laughs> there's background music. There's people proposing, and I've managed to start a fire on our table. <laughs> and I don't mean a little fire. I mean oh I set God. fire to the wood. Oh, so they've come God. over and they've sprayed it out. It was fantastic. And everyone's glaring at you. But, I mean, it was uh, – yeah, so I think just doing things with, the, with my family. I mean, you know, I'm planning a trip with Sarah at the moment. But even just simple things like a Sunday lunch, I love mm. stuff like that. Yeah. I love yeah. just catching up with people and having a chat or a cup of coffee or – sitting, you know, just things like that. It's it's kind of pathetic, but it's those, it's that minutiae. Mm. It's almost like a sort of a, what are those pointillist paintings where everything's made of little dots? Yes. And you stand back and you see one giant picture, but actually it's just an accumulation of tiny dots, and that's how I kind of see life. It's those little dots, each one of those, you know, a lunch, yeah. uh, a coffee, a chat, um, a phone call, yeah. um, a trip. You know, that's, to me, what is the the little dots that make up the the bigger picture of life.
0: Question nine, and this can relate to work or comedy or or an an actual battle. Who would you want on your side in a battle and why?
1: Um, That's interesting because, to me, I mean, your first thing is to say a battle, someone who's going to be strong and who's going to win and help you win and, and, and all of that. But on reflection, I think probably um, I'd rather, in a funny sort of way, I'd rather be surrounded by people who I like and who have a certain humanity and who make me laugh and cry um, and who are forgiving and kind and generous mm. and lose the battle. Yeah. <laughs> but But sort of go down with them, with yeah. my, with my peeps, yeah. Uh, then, uh, then, then, really win a battle, as it were. I'd rather, I'd rather be with my people doing our stuff, um, and and lose the battle, because uh, to me, uh, you know, th- that that to me is how I'd rather live life with the people. I'd, I'd rather be with, surrounded by the people. I'd rather be with. For me, that's my family and my friends. Um, that, that I mean, I know that's a pathetic no, answer. No,
0: it's a lovely but it, answer.
1: but it kind of is. It's my mates. It's like, you know, it's all the mates I've been talking about. It. Yeah. It's, you know, it's Tony and and, and, and and you know, Paul and the people at work. I, you know, I've got great but Mark Clemens and Sean and the people at work that I work with as well, you know, and, and those areas. And the people, too, that I've been... And Andrew and I, people I've been lucky enough to work with over the years. And mm-hmm. you, you know, I'd rather... I'd rather uh, be surrounded by people that make me laugh and and cry. Um, And and there's no deal. There's no – I can't think of much in life that is worth fighting for that loses them. Mm. I'd rather be with them and the rest, you know, I don't give a stuff about.
0: Yeah, and those people have been with you
1: for a long time, you know. They have. It's funny, I mean, you you were talking, you know, I've just, as you know, I've written this play about um, uh, Gallipoli and uh, it's actually the premise of the play is, um, (coughs) the premise of the play is really simple. It's about the, you know, it's the centenary of Gallipoli. It's a comedy. I've written the only comedy about Gallipoli, for (laughs) better or worse. And it may be for worse, Who, who can say it? Uh, But the premise is, and it's actually not about what happened then, it's about how we treat Gallipoli now. So, the premise of the play, quite simply, is that uh, the government's decided to put on the the pinnacle event for the centenary, being the sort of the crucible of our nationhood. And it's the Royal Command Gallipoli Variety Concert. It's in charge of, it's in front of the Royal Family. And as they want to do, they put a a, a colonel, a military colonel, who's just back from Afghanistan, in charge of it the bull from Kabul, but he's inept, he's incompetent at this. I mean, he's brilliant at army stuff, but he couldn't produce a concert to save himself. So they put him with this shiny floor show producer that you know, we know the sort, um, who's from a show called I'm a Celebrity, Let Me Dance, yeah. and it's the worst coupling you've ever seen. And it's, the concert's looking really bad, and it's going to be beamed live around the nation in 23 <laughs> allied countries until they discover that there's one last living Anzac this Clary Flint, which is obviously the conceit of the piece, he'd be ridiculously old. <laughs> but this Clary Flint, they build the concert around him, and then the con- and then as they're stuck with him, and they built him into it, they can't go backwards. And as the, as they learn more about him, they learn that he's everything a soldier shouldn't have been. He <laughs> he, he he smuggled contraband in in bandages onto the Gallipoli beach. He. He uh, basically has gambling debts, he watches the... dot. It's everything. But, but ultimately, uh, they find he was dishonorably discharged for... Uh, he was court-martialed for, uh, for disobeying an order. But we'll learn later, and I shouldn't give it away, but I will, that actually it's interesting what constitutes obeying an order and what constitutes a battle. His, his, his order was to stand at the bottom of the ladder... And uh, to shoot anyone who failed to go over the top, and then, worse still, to shoot anyone who didn't come back down that ladder. And they're the sort of orders that are given in battle. They're the sort of orders that were given in battle. Um, and so, you know, it's interesting. You say, That's who would right. you like? Who would you like by you in battle? And uh, and what orders are worth obeying? Um, you know, some orders are not worth obeying, I think.
0: Uh, Steve, and, the, the final question is, what would you like your last words to be?
1: Oh, Christ. What's on a gold class today? Pass the bottle over here. <laughs> um, uh, give me a kiss. <laughs> uh, I've got this idea. That's kind of how <laughs> I live my life. I've got this idea. And then I'm gone. <laughs> that would be my life. Can I tell you, I've just written this um, thing with Paul Grabowski. It's a, it's an opera. Yeah. Uh, and I think I may have told you this, but this is to me about last words, and it's true. It, the thing I've written is called Banquet of Secrets, and it's about four people who go to uni, and they catch up every year, and they have this fantastic meal. And this particular year, they catch up, and they're all my age, so they've lived life, and they've all, you know, they've all been married. Some are divorced. They've got kids and stuff. But they catch up each of them religiously every year. This particular year, they they pose the, the question: um, Is it possible that friends as old as we are could still have secrets from each other? And they stupidly say, Yeah, what's well, possible? And they stupidly agree over the course of this particular meal to each share. A secret they've never told anyone. Wow. As each uh, one, as each course comes out, and that's the story. As wow. they each tell a secret, and they all the secrets impact one on each other. But the secret that this is based on is a true secret, and it's the final secret, giving the plot away. I shouldn't, but <laughs> it's based on. It's actually based on a real meal that I had, and it was a real meal I had at Port Douglas. And a friend of ours was not well. They'd been undergoing chemotherapy, and they said, can we borrow your um, holiday house at Port Douglas? And Sarah and I said, yeah, no problems. And they were going to take it after we finished. So they came up a day early and stayed at the bottom of the hill, and they said, can we take you out to thank you for letting us use the the holiday house over the next couple of weeks on we stayed and we said, yeah, that'd be great. And they took this, they booked this place called On the Inlet, which is this great restaurant in Port Douglas. Mm. And it was just, and they picked us up, Sarah and me and, and the, the other couple, and he looked terrible, he'd been undergoing chemotherapy. And he's in, he was in the food industry, he took us down and um, he booked the best table and he'd worded up the chef and he'd got the best food and he'd ordered a tasting me- menu. Uh, And and he brought wine up from home, like the best French wine, beautiful French wine, lots of bottles and all different sorts. And, And so this meal unfolded. We started midday and we'd have a taste, and he couldn't eat much, but he'd had a taste, so he'd have a taste of veal, and he'd have a little taste of this pepper sauce, and he'd have a, a taste of this particular, you know, potato. And then the next thing, he wanted just a little bit of um, prawn and a bit of the sauce to go with it. And so it went. And he tasted, tasted, and then he started saying to the waiter, could you bring me some basil leaves? And the waiter said, just what? Now, have you got any, just ask the chef for some raw basil leaves, and... Show the way to bring some, back. And he'd just have a nibble on that. And so it went. We finished at 7 o'clock that night, and he tasted and tasted everything. And it was a weird... And with every taste, he'd tell a story. He'd say... I remember when I was growing... He was French. I remember growing up, uh, and we'd go to the Dordogne, and the skies were boundless blue, and we'd chase rabbits, and it was the most beautiful. And then he'd taste a carrot, a honeyed carrot, and he'd say... I remember the first time I had honey carrot and it was when I'd just gone to England and he'd tell a story about that. It was full of stories and full of tasting and, we, and the, the, then the sun was coming down and the boat started to come back into the Port Douglas Harbour. It's the most beautiful, beautiful day, evening, clear sky, you could see the stars and then as, as night came, we drove them and dropped them back at the motel and said, we'll come up and pick the keys up tomorrow morning. And well... Six o'clock the next morning, we got the phone call. It was from his wife, and she said he died that night. Wow. And it was the most uh, – it, it put that dinner, that lunch, into a context in the context of it being the most um, powerful banquet, powerful last supper, the most powerful remembrance and the most powerful goodbye that one could imagine. And that's what it was. It was literally a last supper for him. And I think, as I've reflected on that over the years, I think he must have known Mm. that he was was dying and that he was saying goodbye. And what a way to say goodbye with friends in the most beautiful location, eating the most perfect food and remembering all the flavours that have made up your life. And, you know, as we are talking about before, if, if your life is indeed a, is a pastiche, a, a montage of all of those moments, together, then in a way, he'd recreated them in one almost perfect meal. We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two. All engines running. Ten questions with Adam Joy.
0: Big names. Great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea.
1: Lift off. We have lift off.